If an alien was transported to Dublin City and he was looking for some decent jazz and blues, there's one venue that would spring to mind. JJ's was, was kind of like a state of mind. Not only was it playing with Louis Stewart, but it was playing at JJ's, you know, which was already like a few years into its tenure as a as a major venue in town for live music. It was quite intense, I suppose, at times, because it was a small space and there could be this real incredible jazz being played. I mean, in there it just became like a family, another family that you had, you know, that's the, the vibe that was in there. For me, JJ's was, was, was my sort of spiritual home. JJ's was the place to play. I started playing there, I felt, oh great, we've arrived, we're finally playing in JJ's. JJ's brought the best out of you as a musician, as a singer. The atmosphere in the place was just electric. Nigel Mooney had been doing a regular gig on a Friday night there, which was a blues thing. So we were looking for blues and I found JJ's. Nigel Mooney had just started in 1986. Nigel Mooney was the first sort of jazz Stroke Blues, musician to play in JJ's. I'm Nigel Mooney. I play jazz and blues in the Dublin jazz and blues scene. It just feels like a funny coincidence that I was the first one in there. I, and I, funny enough, I have met guys came to my gig and said, oh, I heard you said you were the first one. We played in here before you were even born. I've, I've had that, you know. But... No doubt before JJ uh, took over JJ's or JJ Smith's, there would have been the odd music session in it. But we effectively were the first band to play in that kind of what became that run, that, that unbroken run of jazz and blues gigs and, and to set up the, the vibe of the place as a kind of a blues house. It used to be the, the, the Thomas Moore house because it was the famously the house that Thomas Moore was born in, you know, the, the, the bard. It was known as the Thomas More House and it was a kind of Irish bar, like there was shamrocks on it and they used to have trad sessions and stuff upstairs. In fact, the building that stands at 12 Anger Street in the set of the city has been a public house since the early 18th century, making it one of Dublin's longest continuous licensed premises. In May 1980, North County Dublin farmer JJ Smith acquired the license and posted his name above the door. JJ's remained just another local until 1986 when guitarist Nigel Mooney wandered in looking for a gig. But I had a, a blues band that I put together not long after I left school, the Gripewater Blues Band. I had been getting some posters printed that we were going to put up around for one of the gigs we were doing. And I went to the printer to pick up the posters and he asked me how was the gig going. And I said, it's gone. So I said, I'm looking for somewhere. This is within the same week or, or 10 days or something. And he then said that he had a meeting with people connected to JJ in this room above the old Thomas Moore house in Angel Street. And he said, it looks like the sort of room you could do a gig in. Why don't you go and have a look? And I thought, well, this could be vaguely interesting while we're looking. So I went in there one day and I went and met JJ. I said, well, this guy suggested you might put some music on. And he said, eh, well, you never know. So he brought me upstairs. He was very affable, JJ, you know, real gentleman. He brought me upstairs and the two of us had a look at the room. And he said to me, well, he said, we have Monday, we tend to not really do anything here. Tuesday, we have darts. 
Wednesday we keep free for the odd 21st party. Thursday night is the lesbian disco. Saturday night is also a lesbian disco. And Friday is free. Would you like to try the Friday out for a few weeks? And I said, uh, okay, we'll give it a try. So we went in the following Friday and by three weeks the place was was so jammed that they used to have to lock the door. There were people standing up and down the stairs. You couldn't get to the jacks, you could hardly get to the bar. It was mental. So we did it like that for a a long time. Like we, We played in there as a specific Friday night residency for a good few years. We did it for about a year or two on the Friday night as as the, the Gripewater Blues Band. And Pat Egan at the time uh, ran the management of Louis Stewart. And Pat put Louis Stewart in on a Monday night. You had Fat Chance on a Sunday, Louis on a Monday and us on the Friday. So it was gradually building. And by, I suppose, about the early 90s, early to mid 90s, it had become nightly. That meant there was kind of music, jazz or blues only every night of the week then. I'm Pat Farrell, guitar player, and I played a lot in J.J. Smith's. At the time, we were playing in the other side of town, places like Slattery's and Cable Street, and the meeting place, which was on Dorset Street. And I suppose to bag it in and places like that were gone at the time, but JJ's at the time uh, was just starting out. My earliest memories in there would be going in with a band called The Business, and uh, we would have played there every so often, every two months, every three months. And then later on, I was to play with uh, Red Peters. We had a residency there, and I think it was on a Tuesday night, and that was with uh, the great Jimmy Faulkner and John Querney and, of course, Red Peters and myself. So we uh, played there for quite a long time and then continued uh, after Red passed away, of course, and so did Jimmy. So later on, we continued on as playing with the business and I've guested in there with many musicians over the years. I can't tell you how many times because it seems like millions. I mean, in there, it just became like a family, another family that you had, you know, that's the, the vibe that was in there. I'm Hugh Buckley. I'm a jazz guitarist. I played at JJ's for almost 30 years. My earliest memories of JJ's was um, Louis Stewart's regular gig on a Monday night. Yeah, that was my first sort of like regular jazz gig to go along to. And, and it was great to go in here along here. Louis Stewart, who was obviously like a world-class musician, yeah? Yeah, that was every night for a few years. And then eventually I got a call, actually. My, my first gig actually at JJ's was, uh, it was 1988. That was the first time I played there. On that Monday night slot, Louis Stewart called me. Uh, he was putting together a five guitar band. Yeah, five guitars, <laughs> which, enjoyed, which was called the Five Guitars. And uh, he asked me would I be interested in playing. So he, we were rehearsing for for a few weeks, and then he decided to, you know, put up his Monday night gig one week for for a performance of the of that band. So that was my first ever ever performance. You can imagine at the time it was a, it was an amazing thing to do because it was he was a great like world class like jazz guitarist and I initially was playing like like rock and pop music but I got into jazz music and he was the obvious like go to man then like in town and as I say it was it was just great to hear someone at that level playing every week, you know, to have the opportunity, you know, be on a bus and go back home and practice all night after. It was the go to place if you were into jazz 
at the time anyway, that's for sure. I mean, there was a gang of my friends, Dave O'Rourke, who's a guitar player, Mike Nielsen, all these jazz guitars. I would have met them probably at Louis Stewart gigs, yeah, really, uh, over the years. Yeah, yeah, it was a place to meet people as well, like, you know, like-minded people who were into that music, yeah. As J.J. Smith started to evolve into a jazz and blues club in the late 80s and early 90s, J.J.'s son, Brian Smith, started to get more involved with the family business. Brian Smith was born on March 2nd, 1970, the eldest son of J.J. and Carmel Smith. Here's Nigel Mooney again. When I started playing there, Brian was probably only about 15 or 16. He was definitely a kid. He was still in school. Brian obviously was JJ's son. But I remember he was behind the bar and Brian was a very young guy at the time. He must have been in his teens, late teens, I think, actually, and he was helping out in the bar, you know, so that's, I kind of remember him then. I mean, you wouldn't miss him. He was like six foot seven, so he was a big lad. But after a while, it was obvious that JJ was sort of bowed out a bit and then bit by bit, Brian took over. I know eventually, like, JJ stepped back a bit and Brian started looking after the gigs and then I suppose, I suppose that is when I really started you know, to get to know him. As he matured into the job and he began to book the nights and produce little flyers and, you know, so he just gradually worked his way into that situation and became the club manager, if you like. He was very, like, friendly sort of guy and he had a real passion for the music in then, like, you know, and that developed, I think it became more and more passionate about it as the years went on and knowledgeable. He was very interested in learning about the music and I think he loved the idea of musicians been around as well he loved that sort of thing and he was the man then for I don't know maybe 25 years 20-25 years at the place that made the made the place happen any gigs that we had in there always went through Brian he'd ring up and are you free and so and so are you free and so and so and we'd go through it yeah that's cool that's cool and uh, you'd go in and uh, you'd be treated with uh, the ultimate respect you know musicians were okay and comfortable it was always a, a pleasure to play in there as I, as I say it was like home from home and Brian made it that way I know he travelled abroad a bit himself and he went to Ronnie Scott's and he went to like places in LA and some of the clubs in New York and I think he he liked the idea of of JJ's being sort of one of those sort of iconic sort of places and you know it, it was it became that eventually obviously you know As I walk through the crowded streets, the streets of Dublin town I walk on by that old pub where I worked and is now closed down My name is Donna Dunn and I was the singing bar staff in JJ Smith's. I found JJ's about three years before I got the job there. I used to go in, I actually used to go in on a Thursday night or a Friday night. I used to go in to see the blues. I just loved it. I just loved the atmosphere of it, the audiences. And it was just, it was such a, just a lovely, a special place. Kind of a secret place in Dublin that not a lot of people knew about. Then I decided to get a job there because I liked it so much. And the music, of course, the musicians were just amazing. I was in Spain for six months working over there as a performer and a bar staff as well and I needed a job pretty quickly when I came home so I went up to JJ's and I went in and, and Brian was there and he said, I said, have you got any jobs? And he said, no, I'm really sorry but I'll take your CV and if anything pops up I'll give you a call. And I was devastated because I was like, oh, this looks like a real easy kind of laid back bar and I knew it was a blues bar as well so I was very excited. 
Then I went up to Whelan's and I got a job up in Whelan's. But it was a bit crazy because the hours were just nuts. And three days later, Brian rang me and he said, there's a job open and someone's after leaving. And it doesn't, it never usually happened because the people that got a job there were three years there or five years or 10 years there. So it was just like complete luck and I couldn't believe it. I started, I was like, yeah, I can't wait. Anyway, yeah, so I went for the interview and I got the job, obviously. But the only thing was I wasn't a professional barmaid or bar staff whatsoever. And I actually didn't really know how to pull a pint of Guinness, but I told Brian I could. <laughs> and he... um he was like, he was like, oh, you obviously you know how to you know how to change a keg, you know how to do this, and I said, yeah, yeah, of course I do, and I was a disaster. I it took me six months to to get uh, fully trained, which I which I did, and yeah, so that's how I got a job there. <laughs> I told him I was a musician, but I I said to him, but I don't I don't need every weekend off, you know, I'm not one of those musicians. I said I just do a few gigs here and there. I'm more of a songwriter sitting in my room recording all the time Hi Tony, I think I'm outside um, I pressed your doorbell How are you? Morning, Paul. How are nice to meet you You too, yeah How are you? Yeah, good My name is Tony Jones and I'm a guitar player, musician and I've played in JJ's a couple of different acts in there uh, I wouldn't have been a regular in JJ's but I've known Brian well over 10 years I was a very good friend of Brian we were very close friends outside of JJ's First of all, he was very tall He struck me actually as being quite a cool guy He was very reserved and very laid back and he used to kind of stroll around Lily's Bordello. That was one of his favourite haunts. And I used to see this guy kind of breezing around. And when I met him for the first time, he was just chatting away about music. And I didn't know who he was. And I mentioned JJ Smith. And he said, yeah, that's my bar. I'm Brian Smith. He was a cool guy that, that knew about music and jazz. A total gentleman. One of the nicest guys anybody could ever meet. He was a very obliging chap. In some cases, maybe a little too obliging. I think people took a little bit of advantage of his very good nature. But he never took offence to anything like that. He was always willing to help. He was a great travelling companion. He was very, very easy to get along with. There was never never a, a bad word or a differences of opinion, strong differences of opinion, you know. We used to enjoy going to the Rochester big and tall stores in America and in London, see Brian buying the clothes for his size. Funny, when we went to Los Angeles and Rodeo Drive, I remember we walked in to one of the Rochester big and talls and it was full of American baseball players and basketball players. And for the first time, Brian was the smallest in the shop. <laughs> Because Brian ran a jazz blues venue, it was great to see Brian away and seeing the actual, the actual people in person that everybody talked about. He got to meet Mike Stern, for example, in the 55 bar in New York. We visited Nashville, met all the Nashville session players, Vince Gill, Brett Mason, Michael Rhodes, all the top session players. Got to see them play, met Vince Gill. I think Brian really, really enjoyed that. I remember one particular 
great thing that happened was Sting has a fantastic backing singer called Joe Lerry. Joe played in uh, JJ's and Sting was in attendance. He was sitting down the back with all of us. That was a big thing for Brian to have Sting in JJ's. You remember me when the west wind moves upon the fields of Bali. You forget the sun in his jealous sky as we walk in fields of gold. One of Brian's closest friends and confidants and also a unique character on the jazz and blues Dublin scene, was Spanner. I'm just Spanner, that's it. End of. No, no discussion, no argument. That's it, Spanner. Everybody knows me as Spanner. Nobody knows me as anything else, and nobody's going to know, because that's my business. And it stays that way. <laughs> so we're looking for blues, and I found JJ's. Nigel Mooney had just started in 1986. And then the Blues Club started, and uh, I ended up doing the door for the Blues Club. And of course, everybody that went to the blues club asked me to the door for them. I was there till five o'clock in the morning putting up posters when everybody was going home and sleeping. And I'd be there talking to Brian after everybody was gone. <laughs> when everybody was gone, we'd have a chat. That was the only thing we actually talked civilly. It would seem to a casual onlooker that Brian and Spanner were at each other all the time, constantly fighting. Not that we were fighting, we were just shouting at each other. It was never a fight though. But that was, that was how we, we related in front of everybody. Most people said, you was like a married couple. And that, <laughs> that was the way they saw us, you know. If you never had the pleasure of attending a performance in JJ's, you're probably wondering what it looked like, what it smelled like, what it sounded like, what it felt like. I let some of the people who knew JJ's best Paint that picture in your mind. It was just real intimate, and the people that went there went purely for the music. JJ's would be a venue very much you had to be interested in the music. I mean, like it was just black. It kind of looked like an old man's pub. <laughs> Don't be expecting the the concert hall because it ain't. Physically, it was it was a long, narrow room. So you walked up a stairs from the street. It's quite a small room, I suppose. Max would hold. Hundreds, you could squash it maybe 110 or 20 maybe on certain nights. Posters all over the wall, nice bar, could be quite hard to get a seat. Quite, quite small and narrow. It's actually good in many ways for the players. You can really hear the sound of the instruments in the room. And ideal for jazz, for an intimate setting. The stage then was a narrow stage that took up the whole end of the room with the, the musicians' backs to the, to the window, to the street. When I was going to a gig in JJ's, you could hear the music on the street before you even got to the venue. And that was always very exciting. You'd, you'd have a slight pep in your step and you'd maybe try to sprint up the stairs before you missed something. And there was that air of excitement about the place. It wasn't like the perfect jazz venue. The seats were facing each other from the sides. Sometimes people would be in your way. Uh, the bar wasn't perfectly positioned. But we somehow made it work. So, yeah, it was a very special place like that. Yeah, was a, there was a real sense of community about the place. The downstairs was full of the locals. If you walked by it, you kind of go, oh, I'm not going it's a bit, you know, the carpet looked a bit rough. And There was downstairs, was a lot of locals, and we'd obviously have a, a drink or two before we would go on or maybe afterwards. That's, that's the warmth of it, was the locals and the, the horrible carpet that's been there for... 30 years <laughs> it's just something that I, I liked you know and 
Um, it was just a real old-fashioned pub, and I think that was the charm about it. I, I guess on a slightly less positive note, uh, if you brought a girl there, they mightn't be too impressed with the state of the toilets and the general uh, cut of the place there. So <laughs> mightn't be the best place for a first date, you know. Brian lived above the bar in JJ's, a constant presence. As the 90s progressed, he gradually turned the upstairs bar into a fully functioning music venue. As JJ's emerged into the 21st century, more and more jazz and blues musicians were seeking out the venue, looking for gigs or asking Brian could they put on a night in the club. For, I guess, uh, 11 or 12 years, we ran a weekly night in JJ Smith's called Pendulum. That's Kenneth Killeen, director of the Improvised Music Company, a leading promoter for jazz concerts and festivals in Dublin and Ireland. It was uh, an opportunity for us to programme Irish jazz talent, but also international talent as well. And, you know, it was a regular feature uh, in JJ's for for all that time. And and, um, uh, it was kind of uh, an important weekly session. I mean, there was six other nights of the week in JJ's, which were which were had some amazing programming. I mean, the whole thing together made up for for a complete package in JJ's for over a decade. we, We ran events up there on the Sunday night. You know, JJ's was a very important platform for a lot of musicians because it was it, it sort of it carved out another step for them in their in their career path. You know, Pendulum wanted to be a kind of a, a, an important part of that. And, you know, that lasted until I think like 2009 or 2010. One thing that that, that JJ's was was unique for was the size of the space. I mean, in this music, in jazz music, I mean, having this connection to the audience is, is vital, it's critical, um, uh, it's part of the performance. Um, and JJ's, just the nature of the space, it was palpable, you know. An artist was, was just right beside you performing. The stage was very low, you were, you were right up there, you know, and people would want to get a front row seat. And I mean, literally, that was a front row seat under the bell of, of a saxophone, for example. I'm John Moriarty, I'm a jazz guitar player from Dublin. JJ's was the place to play um, and even before I played there I knew that because I used to sneak in when I was 16 years old so you're talking mid-90s sometime the main act I think I saw was the Louis Stewart band uh, on a Monday night which was really very special highlight of my week anyway yeah it was just a, an amazing sound from all the musicians actually in, in that band at the time so uh, yeah I guess I started playing there a few years after that, I would have been about 19, and uh, I can't remember how it came about, but I remember when somebody booked a gig, I felt, oh great, we've arrived, we're finally playing in JJ's, and it was slightly uh, uh, overwhelming at first, because you'd seen your, your heroes play there, and next minute you have to do something up on that stage, so, but we, we got over that, over the years, it's about 20 years ago since that happened, so. Aoife Doyle and I'm a singer from Wicklow. Yeah, well, JJ's was the, the place when I started out. It, it was the place really where, where the, the mainstay in, in Dublin 
venue for jazz and blues, you know, and it was kind of where you went to see all the the well the veteran players and you know the 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 people who who inspired I suppose me to to learn and to study and then later on I, I played there with in, in some bands myself which was great it was quite intense I suppose at times because it was a small space and it could be full of uh, people and there could be this real kind of incredible jazz being played you know in this small venue so you were really up close and, and personal do you know what I mean with the musicians and it was a real it was just I suppose an all consuming experience but intense would be something that comes to mind <laughs> I suppose it was just um, at the time and any, well, maybe even more so afterwards, you realise that it was quite a, a privileged experience, really, you know, to be so, to be able to kind of see musicians of that calibre, you know, both from Ireland and abroad, you know, because there was often inter- international mus- musicians uh, visiting, which Brian always, you know, gave them a place, you know, gave them a venue to play and a stage to perform on. But it was it was a real privilege, really, to be able to, to get to get to see people so intimately you know, and, and to, to really be able to see the piano player, see his hands, you know, see what was, was going on. And um, I think it made the experience just much more powerful. My name is Susan Tumulty. I am a blues singer and I live in Dublin. JJ's was, it was just a most enjoyable uh, place to play. I think you really tried your utmost best uh, performance. You know, it just brought the best out of you as a musician, as a singer. It, you know, had fantastic atmosphere. The audience came and listened to the music, got into the vibe. The whole place just swung with you, really. It was the atmosphere in the place was just electric. A place, a stage to be able to perform the music that you're passionate about is very special. Tell us about JJ's audience. There were all age groups from every walk of life, young, old, male, female, all sorts of people, a wide section of society who just appreciated good musicianship and good music really and truly and got into the vibe straight away. I think it just the layout of the place, like it's a miniature, miniature Ronnie Scott's, if you like, with the round tables and the, the, the little candles and all of that. So there was an atmosphere there, I suppose, that you're so intimate with the musicians that you were very close to the stage. Um, so you just lived and breathed the, the whole performance really so they were very supportive of of the music throughout the years you know and just got into the vibe Kenneth Colleen again JJ's was just a room uh, above a pub like many rooms above a pub but over time it became etched into kind of like the consciousness of the jazz community um, and that's that's so fundamental that we actually, you know, we don't, we take things for granted until they're gone. It's as simple as that. JJ's was, was kind of like a state of mind, you know what I mean, for audiences, because it was like they, they knew that they were going to get something that was quality or they knew that they were going to get something that was regular. 
um, you know, be that sort of the weekly Thursday night sessions or, you know, they knew that when they were going into that space, they were entering into an environment. It was almost like a, you know, a kind of like a nonverbal contract. You know what I mean? This was, you were going to have an experience, um, you know, uh, and, and at the, at the, at the centre of that experience was, um, was Brian. You know, Brian was a music fan first and foremost, and that's what probably carried the venue through, I'm sure, prosaic and, and difficult times when the audiences just weren't there uh, because Brian was a fan of this music and he knew what he liked and he knew what he didn't like. In fact, he didn't like quite a lot of the stuff that we programmed and he wasn't shy about letting us know. But he, he that's kind of beside the point because he knew that JJ's was a fundamental cog in a bigger machine and he allowed that to, to happen because he knew it was necessary, he knew it was important, he knew it was vital to show all facets of this music, you know. So that's why I kind of say JJ's was a state of mind because because the people that were behind it, the minds that were behind it, as in Brian, while he might have been giving out to me about lack of audience here and, you know, sales, this, that and the other, he knew that there was something far more important happening here um, and it was far more important to keep the overall. He had a very, very top-down view of just what it was and for somebody as modest, as quiet, um, as unassuming as Brian, you know, to be that tenacious in his desire to provide this, you know, despite like, you know, the, the, the prosaic realities of running a business, you know, um, that says a lot about the man and it says a lot about the space. So my memories of JJ's are, they're linked with Brian. John Moriarty again. When I first met Brian, I guess he was a bit, not intimidating, but he wouldn't say very much and he was tall, so he was looking down on you and there was a sort of a sense of the who, who the hell are you, not another new person and you, you kind of have to prove yourself with Brian a bit. And he'd be sceptical about the new guys coming in and you'd have to sort of cut your teeth with certain people before he'd maybe respect what you were doing. Over the years, I mean, I I sat in, I got calls to fill in for people and then I started getting calls for gigs. And after a while, I got to know Brian and he'd text me if there was an opportunity or a date available. Um, he did it just because he loved music and he respected musicians. It's a rare thing, actually, in the publican somebody who's there running a bar. Having said that, he didn't like to see eight people in the room. He he wanted the music to be entertaining at the same time. So anyway, he, he was open to, to stuff, but he wasn't out to um, make a name for himself as a promoter. He just did it because he loved it. And he put so much time into the website and and he really wanted to let people know about Irish musicians, more so than anybody else, actually. Mm. And the impact it had, well... I think the impact on the musicians was quite profound because it, it was so unusual and it gives people hope when, this, when you can see that it is possible for somebody to back you in that way. It makes you not give up. Myself and Brian, the first six months, you know, I didn't really know what to, to make of him because he, didn't really, he was a very shy sort of guy. Donna Dunn again. Like he... How do I explain this? He was just so shy and then... I just got to know him like really well obviously he ha Brian had such a charm about him he was like a ladies man but he was like my brother okay so we had that bond between us that like he would tell me about his girls and my, myself and Brian would go drinking together and we'd have a great laugh together you know we have such I've such great fond memories of him like of, of yeah I would just miss him It was the end of an era in 2016 when JJ Smith's was put up for sale. Over the next year, 
JJ's was due to close a number of times. And finally, on May 4th, 2017, JJ's played host to its last ever performance as a jazz and blues club. Seven weeks later, on the 22nd of June, 2017, Brian Smith passed away. He was 47 years old. Do you mind if I just take you back to talking about Brian again? Do you recall how you felt and how the community felt after he died? And did it come as a, was it obviously a big shock? Absolutely, what you said. Shocked, it was numbing. Was it a complete surprise? Not necessarily. So much of his life was caught up in the place and it was a big change. I think the venue was an extension of his personality. But I remember I was doing a gig with Richie Buckley and Richie, um, he gave Brian a hug and told him to look after himself, that he'd hate to see something happen to him. And I was thinking, God, that's pretty, it's pretty deep, R- Richie. And it's kind of made me think, I wonder, is, is that necessary? And, and I guess it's an eye opener to me personally. And, and it was extremely saddening when it happened. It's the end of an era. Tony Jones again. The great, great tragedy of Brian passing away so young. And I think the scene is a little less without Brian around now. A little bit of the scene died along with JJ's and and with Brian. His legacy to me would be a champion of blues and jazz in Dublin town. And uh, I suppose that is his real legacy. And uh, apart from anything else, just a really nice guy. He was more than a promoter. I think he was a real fan of music, do you know? I think he really cared about music and he cared about live music and musicians having the opportunity and the platform to play. And he was passionate about that, you know? So I think that was what made him very unique, a real friend to the music community in Ireland. I think his name on JJ's is known worldwide. The energy that he put into it gave us all the spirit to go and work with it, you know? It was organic. It was all about being a big sort of crazy family. That's that's what JJ's was. Like JJ's like is so unique. It was like there's a whole like support system in, in JJ's itself, yeah. like, you know, the... Yeah. Brian, it was just about the music, yeah. you know? And that's why I loved it and I could never leave. He just looked down at me and he just, and he had a really beautiful smile and he just smiled at me and then he go, you're not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say hello and go, well. <laughs> Brian Smith was meant to be part of this documentary and his voice is missed. There aren't too many occasions of Brian talking on record about JJ Smith's. But here is a clip of Brian as part of the video made for 25 years of the Improvised Music Company. James Blake playing with Tommy Harvey's stream. The atmosphere was just unbelievable. Just electric. It's just one of those gigs that just blow you away. You know? It kind of it makes it's nice like that to make me proud, you know, that I do what I do. Brian Smith takes his place alongside Max Gordon, owner of the Village Vanguard in New York, and Ronnie Scott, proprietor of the eponymous club in London, as a patron and friend of jazz, without whom the musical life of Dublin would have been considerably poorer. JJ's was the default jazz and blues music venue in Dublin for over 30 years. The heart and soul. Now that it's closed down, what does the future hold for the jazz and blues community in Dublin? 
Kenneth Colleen again. I think that it's going to be really, really hard to replicate somebody like Brian Smith. I mean, you know, in a story as old as time itself, there have been many, you know, well-wishing publicans and bar owners because most of these clubs that, that are set up either by musicians or by even other companies, they're based on goodwill from the public and from the owner, you know, to let it continue. As soon as it's not seen as a profitable enterprise or the enthusiasm, the initial sort of blush, first blush of like, you know, you know, enthusiasm wanes, they fold, you know, and JJ's throughout all of that was the permanence in these like kind of transient pop up things. And as a as a promoter, you know, I think it's it's critical for us to define a new space. But I think it's equally critical that it's a space that is governed by by multiple bodies, like you know, like by city bodies, by county bodies, by our government, by the the Arts Council. Dublin remains one of the few capital cities in Europe without a dedicated jazz venue. You know, JJ's officially was the unofficial home for jazz for thirty plus years. Everybody knew to point up to Angel Street to hear some good music, but now you know, you're pointing in all different directions. So what does that say for the scene? What does that say for for tourists who are visiting the city and they want to catch some music? Every city in Europe has a jazz and blues venue, except Dublin. Susan Tumulty again. And that's very worrying. You know, it's very worrying. So I'm hopefully optimistic for the future, you know, to see another iconic venue, you know, start you know, putting jazz and blues gigs on that was similar to JJ's in that the whole place lived and breathed for the music um, and for the enjoyment of people coming. That was the most important thing, you know. As regards to the next venue, well, there's a place called Arthur's, which is very good. A little bit out of town, but it's a very good venue. Nice people running it too. It took a while, I think, for the musicians to adjust to the room. But now, yeah, we've had some really good gigs there too. It would be nice to see a designated jazz venue in the middle of Dublin that would catch a lot of tourists and maybe put some of the Irish musicians on the map and also create a place where you could bring in special guests from other countries and showcase them that way. And this isn't a crazy idea. This is what happens in pretty much every other country. Today... The name J.J. Smith's is synonymous with jazz and blues in Ireland. J.J.'s, despite being closed since 2017, still holds a special place in the hearts and minds of many musicians and music lovers. As a publican in 1980s Dublin, J.J. Smith takes huge credit for opening up his bar to the jazz and blues community and essentially kicking off the scene that followed. This documentary is dedicated to the memory of Brian Smith, a patron and friend to jazz and blues in Dublin City. It seems appropriate we give the last word to the first musician in the door. Here's Nigel Mooney again. It just had a very nice vibe. I started in JJ's and finished in JJ's. Some people go on to Carnegie Hall, but I I just stayed in JJ's.
This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.